Recovery Elevator, episode 272. You know, because I would think, okay, I, w- I won't drink for a few days or I'll cut back or I won't. And I, f- I found it harder than I, than I expected. And that was when I started to kind of go, maybe this is a problem. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Ruth. She took her last drink on March 21st, 2020. She's from Rarone, Switzerland, and she's 40 years old. In the interview, she talks about her day one right in the middle of the pandemic. You are a rock star, Ruth. Thanks for sharing your story of inspiration with us during these trying times. And guys, on the homepage of recoveryelevator.com, I'm excited that you can get the free Recovery Elevator meditations. Just go to the homepage, enter your email address. You're going to get one that helps you work with the inner child. You're going to be turning the I into we, as in that we are moving forward in life with that alcohol. And you're also going to get a meditation which helps you define your clear goal of your new self with that alcohol. You then put that out there into the field. And then with this universal law, the external environment has no other option than to align to your declaration. Again, these are free meditations that I'm excited to share with you guys. Okay, let's get started. How's everyone's retreat still going? And thank you to all of those who are listening right now. I want to say great job for continuing to invest in yourself. During a pandemic, you are a badass. Now let me say that again. Regardless of how you're feeling right now, in this moment, You're a badass to sticking to the plan, to staying the course, again, wherever you find yourself on this journey, despite what's going on outside, I don't want to be with anybody else than with you guys right now. Okay, so those in recovery have a head start, as in we've already begun the inner transformation that so many are just beginning. So this is a fun episode, everyone, and this stuff gets me pumped up. It's a deep one, and I think you'll understand why, and I want you to come with me. I think you're ready. I know you're ready. But first, here's a long list of countries that have shut down the sale of alcohol and don't recognize them as essential businesses during the COVID. I hope you're comfortable. This is a long list. I mean, you get ready to be here for a while. So cheers to South Africa. They have closed the sale of alcohol until April 16th. And then Nuuk, that's the capital of Greenland. And then the town of Eisne, France. Now the town of Eisne, France, they made this decision because they cited an increase in domestic violence in homes, which led to this decision. So let me flip over this page to this long list of countries. Uh, That page is empty. The list is over. There are three places And they all aren't even countries. Nuke is the capital, that's a city in Greenland, and then a town of Eisne, France. That's it. My goodness. If that's not a wake-up call, I don't know what is. And this is a precursor to where we're going in this episode. So I first want to cover why liquor stores are considered essential businesses. I know many of you have sent me emails wondering the same, and here's why. The mayor of Denver, Colorado, reversed his call of closing all liquor stores on March 23rd, just two hours after announcing that liquor stores would close during the quarantine. I read a long article in the Denver Post the other day on this subject of why the quick reversal. It cited keeping jobs intact, 
preventing more unemployment claims, and these all make sense. But at the end of the article was an honest response from a healthcare worker which said, The last thing we need right now is a bunch of people taking up hospital beds with alcohol withdrawals. And there you have it. It's that simple. Our society, globally, has found ourselves in such a pickle that for many, pharmacies and liquor stores are contemporaneous or interchangeable. That has to change. The other day, I was on the phone with our contact at the hotel in Denver for our upcoming event this June 11th to the 13th. And guys, as I'm recording this on April 13th, I also want to know what's going on and I should have more information soon with you guys where it's kind of a dicey situation with the contract, as you can imagine, but we're all doing our best. So after our conversation, I said, how are you guys doing down there in Denver? How are you doing? She responded with, well, I'm taking it one day at a time. Interesting, I said. Now, where have I heard that before? The big book of Atlas Shrugged? Or maybe the Narnia Chronicles? I think. It must be one of those two. Then a couple days later, I dropped off my bike to get tuned, which for sanity purposes is deemed an essential business in Colorado, thankfully. And I asked the guy how he is doing. He said, well, it's one bike at a time, and... We're all taking it day by day. I respond with, you don't say, amigo. So where have I heard that one? Where have I heard these teachings of the most profound teaching of all time, which is being present in the moment? Is it the big book of Webster's? I'm kidding, guys. Rule 22. We got to still keep that rule intact. So these are classic 12-step program analogies that we have been using for decades. On this podcast, we've been using them for over five years. So overall, those in recovery, those who have quit drinking, those who have ditched the poison called alcohol, the shit, we've been saying these things for 15 years shy of a century. I'm like, is everyone working a 12-step program these days? Well, not everyone, but more now than ever, including those who don't struggle with alcohol and aren't aware they are even working the program. So this is where we have had a head start. A head start on what, you may ask? on connecting the heart and soul internally, regardless of external circumstances, on building inner peace without an external substance, such as Pinot Grigio, wine, fat tire, cigarettes, or donuts. Ah, shouldn't have said donuts, guys. I'm not quite ready to give those up, but I think you get the point. So millions of people feel like they are locked up in their own homes right now, in jail, inside their own houses with their families. I FaceTimed with my brother the other night, and they are struggling. His wife is pregnant. They are both working from home, and my three-year-old nephew is no longer at daycare during working hours. My brother said he's going crazy without going to the gym to work, and the boredom is really getting to him. Now, thankfully, my brother does not struggle with alcohol, and he's never been the one to ask for advice, especially from his little brother, Paul. But I think we're in a chat about this stuff shortly. I, I need to reach out and, and help him with some of these things. Okay, here's where I encourage you to go deep with me. Are you ready? In my talk in February 2019 at our live event in Nashville, I said that alcohol and addiction is an invitation to wake up. To recognize that true, long-term happiness can never be tied with the external physical world. This could be a life partner, a pet, a spouse, a job, 
or your ride on John Deere green lawnmower. And side note, the country artist Joe Diffie, who wrote that song John Deere Green, recently passed away due to the coronavirus. Guys, this shit is real. So we, who grapple with addiction, choose to receive this invitation early. As in, we are the primary wave who have decided to do the inner work first and show the way for the rest of humanity. COVID-19 is the invitation for everyone else to do the same. Now, I may have just said some words that furrowed a brow or two. That was that we choose to receive this invitation and that we decided to do this inner work first. As in, it was voluntary. So that's a whole bundle of spirituality that I want you to think about for the rest of the day to start sitting with. We had a webinar a couple weeks ago titled Spirituality and Addiction, and this was the point that spiritual teacher Elaine Huang made. She said that those who have the courage to go within and build inner stability without alcohol are paving the way, are leaving a footprint in consciousness for the rest of humanity who are soon to follow. Now guys, this next part isn't food for thought, but a concept that I believe in all my heart that I've said in previous episodes in my book at past retreats, and it's now more applicable than ever. Due to the stigma surrounding alcoholism and addiction in general, we often mentally shame ourselves to the back of the sociological queue, telling ourselves that we have morally failed, that we messed up in life, and somewhere we fucked up, and this couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, we're the ones who said, okay, I guess I'll quit drinking, do a shit ton of internal work, find stability, and then I'll show my neighbor, cousin, and brother Rod, who don't have drinking problems, how to build a sturdy internal foundation of joy that doesn't give two shits if the Seattle Seahawks win the Super Bowl or not. Do you dig? So these are expansive ideas that I hope you sit with. And Lord knows, many of us have found ourselves with much more time to sit. And one more thing that I want to cover before we hear from Ruth. I want to cover my favorite way to boost the immune system, which piggybacks perfectly off the previous section. Like any other virus, COVID-19 has a low vibration with a closed electromagnetic circuit structure with the resonance frequency of approximately 5.5 hertz to 14.5 hertz. Stick with me for a second. This will make sense. So anything above 14.5 hertz and above 25.5 hertz, the virus dies, as in it cannot live. So the virus has a low vibrational frequency. And for reference, fear, the emotion, also has a low vibrational frequency from 0.2 hertz to 2.2 hertz. Resentment is 0.6 hertz to 3.3 hertz. So it doesn't feel good to feel fear and it doesn't feel good to feel resentment. And I can only guess that it damn well doesn't feel good to have COVID-19. Those are all low vibrational frequencies. So again, the virus dies above 25.5 Hertz. Okay. So a genuine thank you or gratitude, which can be measured has a vibrational frequency of 45 Hertz. Compassion for another human being is 150 hertz. And unconditional, universal, sacrificial love is at 205 hertz. If you practice gratitude and compassion, COVID can't survive in that environment. As in, 
It's not even possible to thrive. It can't take hold. So this is a micro that is being applied to the macro at this moment. And before we hear from Ruth, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive, loving community, and you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or are simply sober curious, you'll get both of these in Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who is in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19 a month, you get access to the community, get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online discussions, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. And another portion goes to the in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Ruth, sweetheart, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Ruth, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. And let's get right into this. When was your last drink? March 21st. March 21st. That's 13 days at the time of recording right now away from alcohol. And Ruth... I think a sobriety date, an alcohol-free date of around March 21st, let's go with that date or the week before, the week after, basically before this shitstorm of the pandemic called the coronavirus started, is going to be one of the most badass sobriety dates ever recorded. It's like, I love it when I hear a sobriety date of December 30th or December 24th or Thanksgiving Day, where there's a date where we normally would need alcohol to make it through, but nope, you decided to make a change, the biggest change in your life, perhaps when life gave you the biggest excuse, biggest reason to move forward in active addiction, to move forward drinking alcohol. So Ruth, I just want to say kudos to you, a huge pat on the back. And listeners, Ruth sent me an email, which prompted me to reach out to her to get her on the podcast about her experience during the pandemic. And Ruth, is that okay if I read the email to listeners? Yes, of course. Okay, here we go. It says, hey, Paul, I had 40 days, longest ever by a lot, when the pandemic got very real and had a huge impact on my personal life, as it has for everyone, and I caved. I thought I could get away with it just this once. Well, as you can guess, I couldn't. I almost immediately found myself drinking exactly as, as I had been prior to quitting. I was drinking because I was drinking. Luckily, I pulled it together and started over. Hardest day one ever, and I've had my share of day ones, but now I'm on day five. I'm grateful for the lessons it has taught me, and I'm so glad to be sober again, and so glad it didn't let me go on for longer. So it has me thinking a lot about people who have relapsed, might relapse, feel more urges, etc. during this crazy, stressful, and scary time. And I'd love to hear what you have to say to help these people. So Ruth, thank you very much for reaching out. And huge kudos to you again. You're on day five when you send this email. You're on day 13 right now. 
life has given us plenty of reason and i'm sure the thinking mind has justified a drink the cravings for just about everyone so i want to say thank you for emailing and before i talk to the answer your last question you said i'd love to hear what you have to say to these people because i do have a message right now i want to hear from you what were you feeling when you sent this email and talk to us about your experience right now during the pandemic well to answer what i was feeling when i sent the email was just an awareness that this would be a test for a lot of people and that it was for me and that if I had anything to offer that or just to reach out, let people know or to hear from you, you know, what I did, it's not hopeless that it's, you know, I don't know, just, just and grateful that I had gotten sober again, that I had stopped, that I didn't let it get out of hand. Yeah. (laughs) Hard to put into words, but just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I have, an experience due to the pandemic that if it could any way be helpful to anybody who's maybe struggling or, or especially in early sobriety, you know, I think that's when it seems to be the most fragile, I think for most people. So. And listeners, Ruth is the reason why episode 270 and 271 is, is why I'm sharing is why I shared the experiences of people on the front lines with, with their addiction, with their drinking. When she sent that email, it got the wheels turning. I put the post up in our private community cap. They already asking people for their experiences. And you're right. This has been a test. This has been trialing times for, for, for many. Um, and many have viewed this as an opportunity. Many have said, look, this is, this is not the time to quit drinking. And I can't fault anybody for, for saying that right now. I'm a firm believer that at this moment, we have the very best chance percentage-wise to quit drinking. And that's mostly because every time we, we drink, we're deepening the psychological grooves in the mind. We're reinforcing the neural networks around alcohol. So right now is the best time to quit drinking. And I have recognized that normally we have about, I would say, five to 10 registrations for Cafe RE. At this moment, they are cut in half, and I couldn't figure it out, Ruth. And then a couple days of just sitting on, I was like, oh, now is not the time to quit drinking, or that's the narrative. That's the role that a lot of people are telling themselves. So if you're listening right now, I'm, I'm going to challenge that with you and, fl- and flip it, because now is the absolute best time to quit drinking. The, the unknown is, is intense right now. We don't know how long this is going to go for. We don't. And, and so, and for a lot of us, you may, have, you may have said to yourself, look, if I, only I didn't have to go to work and see my boss, if only I just had a break from work, then I could start reading the quit literature, do yoga, start eating better, start my diet, my exercise. Well, for mm-hmm. some, they've been almost gift basketed. I just turned that into a verb. This has been delivered as a tremendous opportunity for that. And, and to the end of your email, to what I have to say to, to, to help those people, to help everyone listening on the podcast is right now is the most important time of your life to practice and give yourself unconditional love. Now, this is non-transactional. What I mean by that is when I loved myself early on in this journey, I found it was more dependent on a clock. It was more dependent on a to-do list, Ruth, of of, look, I just logged seven days away from alcohol. I logged 14. I had, I had 30. Wow, I really love myself right now because I just hit two weeks or 60 days. You understand. So right mm-hmm. now is the time to, A, focus on recovery and a time away from alcohol. But more importantly, focus on that self-love that doesn't matter on what time you woke up, if you meditated, if you stayed away from alcohol, if you followed your practice, your, your yoga routine, meditation, all that stuff. Because when we deepen with this self-love, all that other BS of drinking and those negative um, behaviors and actions, they somewhat dissolve, they soften, and they go away. So 
Ruth, I'm, I'm so glad to have you here. And we're going to get back to the coronavirus and, and your experience, but let's let's get listeners up to speed on your story and, and, and more about yourself, Ruth. Give listeners some information about yourself, where you're from, your age, what you do for a living, if you have a family. And most importantly, Ruth, what do you like to do for fun? Okay, I'm 40 years old. I grew up in Denver, but I have been living in Switzerland for the past six years. I am a single mom for a living at the moment. At the moment, I'm out of work, like so many people. But um, I work as a manager of a small restaurant here in Switzerland. And for fun, I love hiking and running. I like a good movie and reading books, exercise, and outdoor activities especially are my big ones. What's it like in Switzerland right now with the coronavirus? Well, luckily, it's... well. It has one of the highest rates per capita in the world, if not the highest right now, as of it kind of wavers back and forth at the moment, but also one of the lower death rates, which is good. Where I'm at is fairly rural, so, you know, we still, people are not wearing masks. You can still go for walks and bike rides and things like that, hiking. All the restaurants are closed. All non-essential businesses are closed, just like most places, I think, at this point. Grocery stores are open, but there's a limited number of people that can go in at any certain time. They have different systems set up for that. One of them has a like a little a pot with tokens in it, and it's got a disinfectant. And if there's no tokens, you can't go in, but you can take a token to go in if there's some there, and then you put it back in when you come out. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty yeah pretty much of a shutdown except for grocery stores and pharmacies and yeah. Yeah, similar to out here. And we were all surprised, especially in our communities or cafe or e-groups, when on the news it said liquor stores, alcohol stores were deemed essential businesses. And pharmacy and liquor store for many are contemporaneous. They're interchangeable. They're basically the same thing. And there were a couple times in my journey where the body was physically addicted to alcohol. And that was how it was for me. I was self-medicating with that to soothe the inner pain with the external substance called alcohol. And... You know, I did a YouTube video the other day, Ruth, talking about the question of now is now the best time to quit drinking. And I I rattle off several reasons because I'm a firm advocate that right now, like we said earlier, is the best time. The only reason that I could come up with to postpone this drinking is if you're going to occupy a hospital bed that's needed for somebody with the coronavirus. I mean, that's really the only time that I can think of right now. So it it was alarming to see that liquor store was deemed an essential business. However, I think as a society as a whole, we'd have coronavirus would be an issue and perhaps an even bigger issue would be the shitstorm if we closed places that sell alcohol, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I thought about that and I've seen people discussing that in forums online as well. Like, you know, on the face of it, it's like, what liquor stores? That's not essential. But then there are people out there who would occupy a hospital bed if they did try to go cold turkey or they suddenly couldn't get their you know their supply their drug their alcohol because of a physical dependence and so yeah it's unfortunate and that's one of the reasons yeah i mean it's unfortunate that people who might otherwise be able to get the help that they need right now can't but i think that for the majority of drinkers i mean i've heard something like you know 90 percent or 95 percent of people are not addicted to the point of needing medical attention when they do quit. And so, as you've said, it's kind of an opportunity here with all of the pressures of everyday life off to maybe take advantage of that and um, step back. And it's maybe one of the best times to quit. 
It is. And, and as far as detoxing, listeners, if you are to that moment, alcohol is the most dangerous drug in the world to detox from. So make sure you can get medical supervision if you fall into the, that category that needs medical supervision. But make sure you're, you're at a facility that's not taking up a bed. And, and there's another opportunity here. What's going to happen, I, I, I feel. So when I owned a bar in Spain in my mid-20s, three years of drinking happened that probably would have taken three decades had I not made that move to go to Spain to buy a bar. Looking back on that, it precipitated, it totally sped up my journey. And I feel that this is something that's going to do the same for a lot of people. This is almost a tinderbox for addiction. I'm getting articles sent my way that, that are saying that, that for, for people with active addiction, this is, this is dangerous, right? On one side, there's a crisis. But on the other side, we did a, I did an episode a couple of weeks ago that talks about how following crisis isn't always an opportunity. So this is going to speed up people's journey of going within, looking internal, and, and really looking at what's holding them back. So I feel another side, silver lining to this, is going to be more people than ever are going to have to wake up after this, go internal, and deal with what's, what's holding them back. So Ruth, yeah. let's, let's dig into your story and um, give listeners background about your drinking. How much did you drink? When did you first realize it was a problem? Did you ever attempt to moderate? And you're 40 years old now, so try to give us some, some ages so we're chronologically up to speed. I'm excited to hear your story, Ruth. All right, well, I started drinking as a teenager, as many people do. Uh, the first time I ever got drunk is a bit of a funny, funny story. It was completely on accident. I skipped class with some friends. I was 14 years old and they decided to get some uh, 40s of Mickey's and <laughs> I didn't know, I had no idea, I'd never really drank before, I had no idea what it took to get drunk and I remember going back to school for lunch and realizing that I was drunk and by the time school got out, I mean I didn't go back to class, I stayed out of class for the rest of the day and by the time school got out and my mom came to pick me up, I felt so terrible and I thought I am never going to do that again. <laughs> I was sort of like, no, no way. That's awful. But then, you know, of course, a few years later in my teens, you started drinking more for fun. I had a, a boyfriend when I was 16 who was 21. And so he could get alcohol and he really liked to drink. And so, yeah, drinking as a teenager, partying a lot. But then when I was 20, I got pregnant and that pretty much stopped it dead in its tracks for quite a long time. Once my son was born, I had moved out of the same social circles and the partying life and I wasn't interested in that and I wasn't, you know, really surrounding myself with that anymore. So for quite a long time, I didn't drink very much at all. And it wasn't until I was in my late 20s, early 30s. Well, throughout my 20s, I still would drink. My son's dad and I, we would have a beer or two pretty much every night but it was we we didn't go out we didn't party it was pretty very moderate and then it was when I was in my early 30s and some stresses and problems and our relationship started to arise I remember one day very very specifically I was having a lot of anxiety over a lot of things I had lost my appetite I was losing weight and I went with a couple of friends of mine for a walk and we got a couple of beers to drink in the park and I felt better and it was the first time that I had felt better in weeks and it just it was like a moment when it twigged oh wow alcohol helps <laughs> so real quick Ruth was the anxiety you were feeling before the walk in the park that wasn't because you were you were hungover or it wasn't because like the there was alcohol in your system before you were just going no, through anxiety. No, it, okay. it was sort of just circumstantial anxiety over just various things going on in my life and you know stresses and worries 
and I hadn't ever really experienced anxiety like that before. Sure. Just and normal life was, stressors. And then you found a couple yes. beers in the park. You said, wait a second, this is working. I feel better. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But, and, you know, looking back, it's like I probably would have felt better just taking the walk in the park without the beers. But I, I made that association between the beers and the feeling better. And so that's, I think, when I really started to self-medicate with alcohol. And even then, it took a while. It wasn't overnight. I didn't suddenly start drinking a lot. But just that knowledge, that association, alcohol became a go-to anytime I was feeling bad, negatively depressed, lonely. And then, of course, also you drink when you're happy, when you're having a good time, when it's mm -hmm. a party, when it's a celebration. And so, it's you funny know. how that works. So yeah. you're realizing that alcohol is helping with the anxiety after that walk in the park. And I imagine you continue to go to what works after that. Yeah, exactly. I did continue to go to that. And at that point in time, I wasn't getting, you know, really drunk. I was just having enough to take the edge off, kind of. I didn't really see it as a problem. I thought it was fine. You know, it's normal. This is what people do. Although I do remember watching a movie during that period of time and hearing someone in the movie say, you shouldn't drink to feel better. You should drink to feel even better. And I was very aware at that point that I was drinking to feel better. It kind of stuck with me. But to continue with my drinking story, uh, my relationship with my son's dad ended. That was the catalyst for me to come here to Switzerland. And about three and a half years ago, I started a new relationship, and it was very boozy. We we drank together a lot. That became a very big when part of When did you move to Switzerland? Uh, 2014. Okay, it so you're 34, 35? Years ago, exactly. Okay. Yeah, okay. 30, I met him when I was 36, and... Over the course of our relationship, my drinking really intensified, partly through our relationship, and then also it got, I started to wake up in the morning feeling hungover and have a drink to feel better. And it's escalated to the point where I was, you know, hiding bottles and, yeah, drinking pretty definitely every single day and for a large portion of the day. Like, I got to where I, I if I made it to, like, 4 or 5 o'clock in the day, I felt like what I was doing good that I hadn't drunk yet at that sure, point. Sure, I'm sure the mind justified said, "Okay, Ruth, you deserve it. We made it to 5 p.m." Exactly, of course. Yeah. And and it, it doesn't help that my job is a very 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 casual, very small little restaurant and it's in here in Switzerland, the drinking culture is they make it seem quaint, you know. <laughs> it's of course you have wine with lunch. Of course you do. It's not unusual for people to. It's not like in the states, you know. Here people will have a beer or a glass of wine at eleven o'clock in the morning, and nobody thinks that that's strange or weird. And so where I work, it's totally acceptable, even expected that you're going to drink while you're on the job and stuff. So there wasn't even that constraint of like, oh, I have to go to work and wait till after work. It was sure. like, oh, I can have beer at work, you know. Yeah, and a restaurant industry definitely is a hotbed for drinking, oh, yes. without oh, yes. a doubt. And was there a time, you mentioned your drinking ramped up quickly. Was there a time during that phase where you said, hang on a second, Ruth, things might be going down a pathway that we don't want to go down? Well, yeah. I mean, even even going back to years before when when my son's dad and I were still together and we would drink a beer or two every night, I remember even then like feeling if if the store was closed or we couldn't for some reason didn't have any and it was too late to get any and like not being able to have that beer that night would make me kind of grumpy and kind of like, you know, ugh, I wanted my beer, you know, and even then I kind of remember thinking, well, that's not, that shouldn't be that way. But yeah, as it, as it, after he and I split up and I came to Switzerland, that's when it did start to get much more regularly. 
and then it really ramped up in the new relationship. But I, it was in the back of my mind, I think, for a while there. Like, this is, you know, because I would think, okay, I, w- I won't drink for a few days or I'll cut back or I won't. And if I found it harder than I than I expected. And that was when I started to kind of go, maybe this is a problem. And in the last three years, during the course of my most recent relationship, which actually the breakup from that was one of the catalysts for me to finally really get sober. But it was like the more I tried to stop, the more I drank. And I don't really know exactly why that is or what was going on. But it was like I was very aware that I wanted to stop. And I I started about a year, a little over a year ago, I started trying to get my hands on all the literature I could find. I read This Naked Mind. I read the memoirs. I started listening to podcasts, going online and really looking like, okay, I need to stop. I want to stop. Ruth, I want to dive a little deeper on what you said. You said, the more I wanted to stop, the more I drank. And I know you're like, that doesn't make sense. I know listeners, some listeners are nodding their head. They get it. And some are a little confused by that. Well, that is with the power of awareness. And as soon as we bring to consciousness with the conscious, we say, look, we need to make a decision to make a change about this. That's the conscious part. But the unconscious part and a lot of the ego or the protective personalities wrapped up in that, the ego will always try to protect itself. It will do whatever it needs to do to ensure its identity, its roles, behaviors, patterns, and thoughts. And I went through that too. Almost everybody goes through that as soon as we get the message to the conscious that we do need to evaluate the role that alcohol is playing in our life. And most likely that decision leads to quitting. Yeah. The, the unconscious will put up a fit as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and almost in more situations to drink will line up, but this is, it's normal. It's part of it. And Ruth, can you think of a definitive moment when, um, you said, look, uh, I need to quit drinking now. You, 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 before right now you got 13 days, which is incredible. You said before that you had 42 days. When mm-hmm. did you, when did you start this journey into an alcohol free life? Uh, well, yeah, there were several attempts and several tries and yeah, things would happen. But what it was that really was the catalyst for me getting the 42 days. And then now this 13 days was yeah the breakup from my most recent relationship, the pain of a breakup. I had a moment (laughs) laying in bed one night and, you know, just feeling the pain of the breakup and sad about it. And it was like, this is difficult for me to articulate, but it was like, if you can go through this and you are going through, this is, this is a, I just had the feeling this is a kind of withdrawal and there's nothing you can do. I can't go to the store and get my boyfriend back the same way I can go to the store and get alcohol if I want. And it was like, if you can go through this and you have no choice and it's, you know, happening then you can finally stop drinking. And then I later that day happened upon an article that was talking about how breakups, a lot of times people make it more difficult than it has to be because they don't recognize or understand that what is going on in the brain is very similar to withdrawal. Your brain is chemically adjusting to the absence of this person. And if you can look at it a little bit more objectively like that, you can, it becomes easier. And that sort of confirmed to me that what I was experiencing through the breakup was the thing I was so afraid to experience with alcohol, if that makes any sense. (laughs) Ruth, it does. It does make sense. So a lot of the feelings and sensations in our body, they're, they're algorithms of chemicals, right? And the brain will produce chemicals. And we, we oftentimes separate the body and mind, but they're really the same thing. 
And what it sounds like to me is what you did at, at that night, you're lying in bed, you're feeling the pain is you took a little bit of ownership out of the mind. You said, I'm going to stop thinking myself out of this. And it looks like the body knows what it's doing. I'm going to trust the body because you're right. We do need to grieve. We need to let that energy go. We need to allow those familiar chemicals to, to, to leave. And the body will also create uncomfortable chemicals when we make change. And that's a change of leaving a relationship. So the body will make us feel uncomfortable. But if I'm hearing you correctly, what I think happened is you, you, you made this transition into trusting the body. And you said, look, if the body knows how to deal with this, I'm guessing the body also know how, knows how to move forward without alcohol and process these other feelings and emotions. Is that, is that resonating with you a little bit? That does resonate. And it was also, it does, it was also the fear of quitting alcohol. I don't know if that's our subconscious minds or whatever, but the, I think a lot of people face a lot of fear of the unknown in giving this thing up that has been their crutch, that has been their comfort, that has been, you know, you, you come to lean on it for so much. And for me, there was just such a parallel between that and the relationship. It was like, if I can do without this thing that was a comfort, that was known, the known, and I don't have it, then I can go forward into the unknown of not drinking. Um, and it was like I, kept, I was able to kind of release the fear of quitting and let it go. Ruth, you said four yeah. words there, which summarizes why this journey can be so difficult. And that's fear of the unknown. Right. Yeah. That is the, the unknown, regardless if the known is filled with depression, anxiety, self-loathing, guilt, resentment, shame and alcohol addiction for the ego. And again, we get more work done when we say the word protective personality. The protective personality would prefer that over a life without alcohol, which in we're envisioning a life, with, life without alcohol is in waking up early, seeing sunrises, a hangover-free morning, happiness, joy, not being tethered to an essential business called a liquor store. But even though that stuff sounds so brilliant, so pleasant, so bright, the ego will prefer the other thing always because it's the known. And that's almost the, the, the conundrum the, the craziness of a lifetime. I mean, that's, the, that's what addiction means. And the Latin term means addictus, you're a slave to. So that's what's going on there. But soon as we can start to embrace the unknown, and we've all been giving a heaping dose of the unknown with the coronavirus right here, then and, and, and it's almost like a deep and with, right? There's some strategy of getting outside of the comfort zone. And I did an episode a couple episodes back about that. But the unknown is where the magic exists. That's where your life without alcohol exists. So you had to go there, Ruth. Tell us how you did it. Well, you know, it, again, to draw the parallel with the relationship, it, it, and that was the other thing, as I recognized with the relationship, one of the things is like, why am I hurting? I know intellectually that I am so much better off, that this is the right thing for me, and that this is what I need to do. This is the right decision. But I still was sad, and I still was having pain, and it was just the same with alcohol. It was like, I know this is the right decision, and I need to make it now. And so I did. I just, you know, I I tapered a little bit for a couple of days because I had a, a little bit of fear uh, around if I might have medical issues, which I didn't. Uh, thankfully, I'm very thankful that I didn't. But I, I didn't know. You know, you read, oh, you can have a seizure as late as day three, and I had gone a couple days before, and it, that that was that's a terrifying thing I think for some people, and I know that it is something to be taken very seriously. But I also know that it pro it might scare people off when it doesn't need to, you know. So on January thirty first, I had 
two beers, which for me is nothing, <laughs> the way I was drinking. And then I started on February 1st. And I just, yeah, one day at a time, the old cliche, you know, uh, and, and I started to gain momentum and it, it actually got a lot easier. I started feeling really good and got back into running and doing some yoga and just focusing on trying, you know, the positive and the, you know, I just felt so much better quite quickly. But yeah, just one day at a time. <laughs> Ruth, there's some truth to that one day at a time thing. It points to the most powerful teaching of all time, which is the present moment. And when we are in yeah. this moment, our addiction doesn't exist because the addiction is, our, is, our, is part of the protective personality, the ego that exists in the past and the future. And if we do deepen with the unknown of the present moment, because that's where the magic happens, that's how we quit drinking. Again, complicated, complicated uh, topic called addiction, but it's the most powerful teaching of all time and all concepts and all topics. If you go to a 12 step meeting, all of them point to, to the most prominent uh, concept, which is, which is presence, awareness, and now. So I want to ask yeah. you a question. So 13 days ago was your day one. And the email you sent to me, you said it was your hardest day one. Um, and you mentioned you drank when things got real with the coronavirus and you're not alone there, sweetheart, you're, yeah. you're not. And, and the thinking mind, I've heard countless stories right now, of people having years of sobriety and they're like, Hey Paul, I had a thought the other day that I almost acted upon about drinking it again. This yeah. is the known with the thinking mind is resorting to the past of what worked to find comfort during these trying times. And even if alcohol, your last drink was years ago, it's going to present that solution. So you're not the only one. A lot of people have thought of it totally fine. But talk to us about well, this day one. Oops, sorry. Keep going. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, my day one. Yeah, it was, I think it was the hardest is because I had never, I hadn't had so long before. I mean, I had had false starts and tries and gotten a few days and results, you know, you had asked about moderation. Of course, I tried to moderate this, that, take a month off, only drink on weekends, only, you know. And so I had had lots and lots of tries. I never could get much more than four or five days. But having had such a long period of time, well, it's not that long, but for me, it was a long time. It was 42 days. And Fantastic. then, yeah, thank you. Which I didn't throw it out the window, but then to have broken my streak, thinking that one day, oh, I, just this once, just this once, I can't, I, my anxiety and my, just the pressure, the intensity, the reality of the whole situation was so huge that day. It was like screaming inside of me and I just wanted to quiet it down. And I knew that alcohol would do that. I knew that having a drink would make me feel better. And it did <laughs> until I woke up the next day. And when I woke up the next day, I felt terrible because I had drank. I had the chemicals in my brain and all the same anxieties and pressures were there. So it was the same thing again that day. I was very alarmed at how quickly I found myself drinking almost exactly as I had been before. And knowing that I was going to have to start, well, start all over isn't exactly accurate, but, you know, like go through it again stop break the cycle again and under such stressful difficult circumstances was overwhelming and so actually finally doing it for one thing I felt physically awful that day one it was one of my like I just really felt bad that day and I just felt all the same anxiety worry uncertainty fear everything um, going on around the pandemic plus the knowledge of I had drank I had been drinking again and of course, the chemicals and the chemical reactions that go on in your brain. So it was just, it was, it was a very difficult day one. But 
to anybody out there who may have recently relapsed or is going through a difficult day one, I will say that I did very quickly within three or four days find myself back in a place of joy and feeling good that I was sober again. And, you know, I, that was another thing is I was very worried that it would be very difficult to get back to the happiness that I was experiencing before in those 42 days. I thought, oh, no, now I've, you know, how am I going to feel that way again with everything that's going on? But I did. I was able to get back to a pretty, you know, place of much more peace and joy. It was a difficult day one. And then again, I, I haven't heard of too many easy day ones. But No, day ones are the worst. <laughs> they, they are. And listeners, I had a bunch of them. And a day one on March 21st, again, this is probably one of the most badass sobriety day one dates I have ever heard of. So, Ruth, let's do this. Let's, we're going to, listeners, you can't see us. We're putting, we're doing a pact right now. Day one, yeah. that, that, that's the date, right? We're sticking with that date. Yes, absolutely. Good to hear. I like it too because it's three, two, one. It's like three, Ooh. two, one, go. And three, two, one, go. Ruth, I'm going to love you regardless if you stick with that date or not, but I know you're going to. And two things I want to comment on what you said earlier. Number one is you said you threw those 42 days out the window, but you caught yourself there. They aren't thrown out the window. Those 42 days are forever logged. And there's a, there's a footprint in your consciousness that if you've done it once, you can do it again. And you're building momentum. You're stacking days. Fantastic stuff. And then when you did drink, you talked about the uncomfortable chemicals in the body. So 42 days, what used to be foreign, a life without alcohol, is now becoming the new norm. You're already starting to build the neurological networks around this new life without alcohol. So part of what makes those day ones difficult is what we talked about earlier. Your body's creating chemicals to say, look, this sucks. We don't, we don't like this to go. We don't like going back to alcohol. And I do an episode, I think five or 10 ago called alcohol has been ruined for me. And that's when the energy around your goal of living an alcohol free life is greater than the energy around the addiction. It's when you hit the tipping point and it's great news because it's not, I mean, we can always go back, but um, it's a huge spot in your journey, Ruth. So I, I just want to comment on that. And um, I got a couple more questions before we hit the rapid fire round. Ruth, what what is something you've learned about yourself along the way? That I have a lot of strength, even though, you know, there was a period of time with the drinking that I was really scared that I had just really lost myself and that I might never get it back, that I might never be able to recover myself. And that to me is what recovery means. It's like getting your self back, aligning your actions and your intentions, you know, and, um, and I, and I discovered that I have it in me and that I am not happy that I had a drinking problem, that I've gone through some of the experiences that I had with alcohol, because there's some pretty regrettable experiences there. But I feel incredibly blessed to have experienced coming out of that. I think of it kind of like when you lose something really valuable, like your wallet or your phone or maybe your wedding ring or something that is really, really valuable to you and you're really, really distraught and you're worried and you're stressed and you can't believe you lost it and it's really upsetting. And then that feeling when you find it and you get it back, you know, the relief and the just like you're so grateful to have it back and it's almost worth it that you lost it if that <laughs> I guess I feel that way just learned about myself that I that I can do it that I have a strength and that I'm still I'm still here I'm still me I'm still the person and capable of being the person that I want to be and have been the intention to be yeah Ruth two huge value bombs were dropped there number one you found a strength inside that you didn't think you had we all have this strength I learned the same thing on my journey and number two 
you're recovering the person you were always meant to be. And that's my definition of recovery. It's in my book. I think I first heard it from Russell Brand, how he phrased it, something similar, but I love that. You're recovering the authentic self. You're giving the inner child permission to connect with the personality, the, the protective personality that you are right now and, and be the most like authentic that. version of yourself. Yeah, I like the thinking about it like your inner child because it's like, you know, I found myself going down a path that my childhood self would have been appalled at. <laughs> it would have been like, what? We grew up to do what? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so to, you know, be able to make child Ruth proud of grown woman Ruth is, you know, part of part of it as well. Yeah. And one more question before we hit the rapid fire round. You mentioned you're not working. How are you feeling this idle time? I know boredom for a lot of people is a trigger. How are you feeling your time? Well, yeah, absolutely. Boredom has always been a big trigger of mine. Uh, yeah, with reading, listening to podcasts, I, uh, cooking a lot from scratch. I've always enjoyed cooking and baking, and so I've been doing more of that. Uh, running, walking, yoga, watching the Tiger King just like everybody else. And, and also trying to take it easy on myself, you know, it's like, I just, you have to accept the circumstances. And I, I've kind of messed up my sleep schedule. I've gotten into habit of staying up too late and sleeping too long, but I'm, I'll allow it. You know, it's kind of like, these are different times and I'm just trying not to put too much pressure on myself. And if I spend, you know, 30 minutes looking at the internet, stupid websites or listicle articles, you know, things like that, it's like, it's okay. You know, (laughs) Exactly. Trust the body. If you're sleeping more, that's what you need. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, just be kind to yourself, be patient with yourself and just whatever, whatever distracts you from the boredom, that's fine. It doesn't, you don't have to go out and learn another language or master origami or I don't know. Like. <laughs> totally agree. And we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready, Ruth? I guess so. All right. What's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? Oh, dear. That's a difficult one. Well, I guess the, the, the realization going through the breakup that there was just a brilliant similarity. The relationship was toxic. The alcohol was toxic. I knew that it was a bit painful going through the breakup and that it might be painful going through quitting alcohol, but that if I could do one, I could do the other and I might as well just go for both. What's a memorable moment a life without alcohol has given you? I had... My cousin's daughter came to visit us recently, and she had come before when I was drinking, and I did enjoy it, but I was very aware that I wasn't as present as I could have been. And so this past time when she came to visit, I just really enjoyed getting to know her and hanging out with her and just being 100% present in every conversation that we had. Favorite alcohol-free drink? Sparkling water (laughs) and coffee. Cheers. I'm cheersing here with my sparkling water right now. Oh, there you go. Mine's empty, but. And Ruth, what are some of your favorite resources? Well, I definitely like the Recovery Elevator podcast, Thank one you. of my very favorite podcasts. This Naked Mind is an excellent book. I recommend anybody read it, whether you think you have a problem or not. It's just incredibly educational about alcohol. And I think most people, a lot, the majority of people don't recognize or realize alcohol for what it is. And I, yeah, I also wish that she would write one for teenagers and young people to read before they develop problems. And also my favorite, favorite resource is the Stop Drinking subreddit. And shout out to anybody from there who's listening right now. There, it's great. It's a wonderful online community. They, there's no, they embrace every modality, be it AA Mm -hmm. or 
smart recovery or whatever. It's like just, and it's just really, really encouraging people, lots of support, lots of wisdom, lots of encouragement. What's on your bucket list? Uh, to go to the Greenfield Music Festival with my son. It's a music festival here in Switzerland. It's a metal festival. I'm not into metal, but my son is. And we've gone every year since he was 14. And each time I've been drinking, but I would really like to go with him and not be drinking. It's a four-day camping festival. And just to do that sober, I think, would be fun. That and camping. I want to do sober camping trips. And what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners? Don't give up. Never, never quit trying to quit. No matter how many day ones you have to have, no matter how many books you have to read, no matter how many, you know, and and do that as well. Find every resource that you can get your hands on. Try it all. Read it all. Soak it all in. Um, it will eventually take as long as you don't quit trying. And before we depart, Ruth, give listeners your own customized, you might need to ditch the booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze if you and your boyfriend go out for a couple of drinks and you wake up the next morning with confetti all in the bed and you have no idea where it came from or how it got there. Did you ever find out? I'm curious. No, no, he didn't know either. Neither party knows. Okay. Well, let me know one day if you find out because I'm still curious. Yeah. (laughs) Ruth, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Oh, the World Health Organization. I'm going to be honest with you. We've had a lot of conflicting information out of the WHO, World Health Organization, and the CDC during this pandemic, which has rightfully led people to beyond the point of frustration, including myself at times. However, the World Health Organization did get something right. I did come across an article from the World Health Organization from an expert who has called alcohol consumption an unhelpful strategy to cope with boredom during the coronavirus lockdown after retailers have been overwhelmed by surging wine, beer, and spirit sales this month. So thank you, World Health Organization, for giving us some sound advice. Finally, thank you very much. I'm fully on board with that. So in these times, we are seeing the World Health Organization and the CDC and other institutions at their best. I encourage you to ask yourself, are they doing their best? Is this job acceptable of how we are handling this pandemic? So we all need to stick together, but there are some questions that need to be asked once the dust settles. One question that we don't need to ask is what role alcohol should play in our life. That shouldn't be any role at all. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. I love you guys.